Often, it's the little things and not the flashy technology or slick user interface that make a product or experience memorable. The handwritten note from customer service or the humorous quote that pops up as you're waiting for a screen to load. Our guest today, Felicia Hatcher, calls these moments of enchantment. And she advocates for more opportunities for human touch as artificial intelligence and machine learning push us in the opposite direction. Felicia is the CEO of Black Ambition, an organization founded by Pharrell Williams that works toward closing the opportunity and wealth gap through entrepreneurship. Prior to her current role, she was chief popsicle and co-owner of Feverish Ice Cream and was co-founder and executive director of the Center for Black Innovation. In our conversation, we talk about the perpetual growth and achievement across her career, what she learned bootstrapping her ice cream business from her parents' backyard to Fortune 500 clients, and how her entrepreneurial experiences shaped the way she advises and mentors students and entrepreneurs. It's been a hot summer, so grab a popsicle and get ready for a fun conversation with Felicia Hatcher. Thanks for listening. As a Design Better listener, we think you'll enjoy Tools and Weapons. It's a podcast hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Brad's conversations with leaders at the intersection of the promise and perils of the digital age touch on some fascinating topics, like the new AI economy and how AI is becoming a tool in the battle against hunger. On a recent episode, Brad was taken to Venice, Italy, where he connected with Eve Ubelmanhoff of Iconum. It's a startup that specializes in 3D digitization of endangered cultural heritage sites. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone capture photography and some powerful AI tools to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. How cool is that? On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, you should subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith, wherever finer podcasts are served. Felicia Hatcher, thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Thank you. Thank you, guys. So we're, we're interested in talking to you about um, entrepreneurship and uh, the variety of things that you're working on. But this is a common theme through your career and your education. I wonder if you could give us kind of the brief overview of how you got into entrepreneurial thinking. Whew. I would say I'd had entrepreneurial thinking before I knew what an entrepreneur was, probably even before I knew how to spell the word, right? So, yeah. I still don't know how to spell the word. <laughs> I, it's so funny. People really have to concentrate when they spell the word entrepreneur. It's funny. Um, I have to do the same thing. But my dad has been an entrepreneur for most of my life. And I would say I got the probably not the most positive introduction to entrepreneurship as a result of that. Like I just knew that my dad worked really long hours and came home dirty every single day. And it wasn't the easiest, right? Like we didn't like struggle for anything, but things weren't easy at the same time, if that makes any sense, right? Yeah. My dad has owned a construction and development company for, I don't know, about 25 years now. And that was my first like entree into like fully understanding what an entrepreneur was. And all I remember as a kid is just like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to work long hours and barely see your family. I definitely don't want to come home dirty every single day. 
But without realizing it, like my dad was also teaching me everything that I needed to know about discipline. My dad is up at 3.45, 4 o'clock every morning and goes to bed at like 8, 8.30. If 9 o'clock hits him, his eyes are bloodshot red, right? But I've also seen someone build something from the ground up. And my dad and my uncle are the most successful people in our families and where they came from in South Georgia and leaving home at 16. So like I learned all these lessons without really understanding them at the time. And my mentor always talks about you have to become the person that can do the thing. And so not fully understanding the lessons that I was learning until I started my first business in college. And then I'm just like, man, like discipline, right? And taking care of your team and being consistent were all the things. And I think the other lesson really early on was Girl Scouts. And so like selling the heck out of Girl Scout cookies and realizing that like my mom worked at the tax collector's office at the time. And I was just like, okay, I could do everything that like all the other girls in my troop, Troop 466 was doing. Or like my mom's office saw hundreds of people come in and out of that place every single day. And I could just set up my boxes of cookies right on her desk and blow out like and get the badge and get all the things. And so I would say it was a combination of all of those things at an early age that were like my first kind of entree into understanding how to get creative with limited resources and then technology as well. And then, of course, just being introduced to the good and the bad side of entrepreneurship through watching my dad build something out of nothing. So I just want to dig into that a little bit more because the other thread in your career, kind of your personal story is there's just a great deal of achievement. It seems like whatever you have done, you don't just like do it. You kind of like knock it out of the park and there's a lot of opportunity that comes from that. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. What's behind that? And then how does that then shape your trajectory as a person? Yeah, it's been a few things. You know, I think now I can look back and be like, man, these have been a lot of accomplishments, but being in the middle of them or in the beginning of them, it doesn't quite feel like that. I think the celebration of the impact of the work that myself and my husband have been able to do over the course of you know, building a company, building a few nonprofit organizations, but we were honored at the White House in 2014 as like White House Champions of Change for STEM Access and Diversity. Prior to that, I think in 2011, that was the first time as one of like the top 100 entrepreneurs under the age of 30 at the White House again. So going there twice uh, was never something that I ever like imagined or hoped for, but it was been such dope experiences for us. And um, all the awards that have come after that, you know, Ava DuVernay has this quote that says like, if the dream only includes you, you're not dreaming big enough. And I think that's the best way to describe the accolades and the moments, right? It's never been about just us. It's always been about like, how can we do something that brings more people along? How can we like knock down a door and not just for ourselves, but like keep the door wedged open so as many more people can come through it as us? Or the flip side of that is like, how can we make this journey less painful for other people than it was for us? And that has always been the driving force of everything. The food company that we ran, starting Black Tech Week, which we recently just sold to Lightship Foundation, developing and creating the Center for Black Innovation. And then even now the work that I do with Pharrell is like funding entrepreneurs and creating uninterrupted environments for them 
so that they can build companies, get the right type of funding that they need, and be massive contributors to their communities and ultimately to our economy and more to the innovation economy. And as a result of that, we've been awarded, right? But our North Star has always been like, how do we create an environment in which specifically Black and brown people can be their innovative and creative selves? And all the things that have stood in the way of them being able to achieve that and get the things that they need, how do we clear those things out of the pathway? You know, I would be remiss to say like the accolades and the awards don't mean anything because they absolutely do. I think in those dark moments when you set out on like your creative path and things aren't going as well as you want it to, or life has punched you in the gut, those things help remind you that you were on this path for a very specific reason. And I think as entrepreneurs or creatives, it allows you to sometimes leverage those moments for more awareness, raising your social capital, raising capital so that you can continue to do this work in the way that you are you're able to do so. And they can be validating too, personally validating. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Alicia, I want to kind of rewind back to the early part of your career. And this is a little bit of a sidebar, but there's this movie, Scottish movie in the 1980s called Comfort and Joy, which is a loosely sort of inspired by the ice cream wars in Glasgow. And it's sort of a funny movie, but there is a line in it that I'm sort of paraphrasing, but it says ice cream is a serious business. <laughs> and I'm curious, like when you got your start with popsicles and you, from what I understand, essentially bootstrapped that business from the very ground up, starting in your parents' backyard, what were some of those early lessons that you learned from that experience? Man, you are absolutely right. Ice cream is a serious business. It's uh, quite... <laughs> The funny part of that is that is no joke. That is real. It's actually kind of gangster. Like if you're in the industry, you know, the the behind the scenes. And I think even the reason why, I mean, not even even the reason why we even ventured down, like let's target adults as opposed to kids was learning how cutthroat the industry actually was. Because when we originally launched the business and being in my parents' backyard, like there was an elementary school, I think in a high school in close proximity. So we're like, this is great. At two o'clock, you know, we'll just pedal our ice cream carts that we bought off the luxury shopping website Craigslist and we'll pedal them to the elementary school at two and then pedal it to the high school at three and we'll just wash up like with all this money. And what we quickly realized is how gangster the ice cream industry literally is and how territorial those that had been there for like years were because that was their only source, right? It was only targeting adults. And this was before like gourmet food trucks. And so we were constantly pushed out, especially when they realized that we could get closer than they could because they had big trucks and we had ice cream carts. And so we could literally pedal right up to the kids while they could not like come inside the gate. And so they started to make it really, really hard for us. And so we weren't making any money after a while because we were literally being shut out. We're just like, isn't your job to put smiles on everyone's faces? Like, how are you guys acting like this and sabotaging us? And so it actually forced us to find a different market and a different audience that really paid off for us. And so instead of going out at two o'clock, we started going out at like 10 p.m. and posting up in front of nightclubs and posting up in front of like PR events and fashion events and you know, I would love to say that we were happy about it at that time. We weren't because we were just like from two to five is all we have to do. And now realizing like, no, like it's from 10 to 2 a.m. But we were the only ones out at that late servicing adults. And it really did pay off for us. But yeah, that quote rings true. Kind of a pain point personally, because it's just <laughs> like, 
you just didn't think that in the business of smiles in a lot of way that there was all this stuff going on in the background. What's an innovation desert? So an innovation desert is a term my husband, Derek, and I coined when we started doing our work around Code Fever. So we started a food company called Feverish Pops and then launched like this STEM education initiative called Code Fever in the beginning, really to just train our employees at our ice cream shop. We knew that they weren't going to be in the popsicle business forever. Quite honestly, we knew we wouldn't be in the popsicle business forever. And it was really kind of leaning back on myself and my husband's like tech background. So I always tell people you should be more surprised that we ended up in the food business than tech because that was our background. At the time, everyone was like familiar with food deserts. I think there were a million and one TED Talks about people having to travel miles and oftentimes to get access to fresh fruits and vegetables. And when we started training young people in computer programming and digital literacy, how to navigate like a startup ecosystem as a person of color, what we were realizing was that, well, there are also innovation deserts, like young people, adults, dreamers, potentially tech professionals had to also leave their communities in order to be active participants in the innovation or startup communities or economies within their cities. And so here in South Florida, we have 13 targeted urban areas and none of the startup or tech activity was happening in those communities. You literally had to go across the bridge, across the tracks. And for us, it was like it was really painting a few pictures. One, this activity should happen in your community. Two, what do we say when you can't participate actively or be a financial beneficiary unless you go to a completely other neighborhood? And so the same thing that we saw in food deserts, we were seeing from an access funding startup and entrepreneurial standpoint in those communities as well. And so we deem those innovation deserts. And it's not that innovation doesn't happen in those communities because we've all definitely seen it happen. What was happening is that those communities were being left out and they were not being financial beneficiaries of the innovation economy. And so when I say that, I always tell people, look at the utility of Uber pool, you know, strangers piling into a vehicle, paying a fraction of the cost to go from point A to point B. And so if you looked at those communities for the opportunities, instead of looking at it from an obstacle first, then you would have seen that same problem solving of major transportation infrastructure actually happening in black and brown communities 25 to 30 years ago before Uber was founded and before the Uber pool like option, right? And that was the Jitney taxi. And in the Caribbean, it was the Judah taxi. And in Haiti, it was Tap Top. And I, like, I can go on and on of how like this peer-to-peer or group travel transportation issue was being solved. So I always tell people, especially investors, I'm like, you know, if you want to solve or you want to get in on a deal earlier, look into communities that have had to solve major problems because of systemic issues, because of disparity, because of a lack of funding, because they've figured this thing out. The Black Church crowdfunds every Sunday. It's called Passing the Plate. That's how they funded the roof building campaign or the scholarship campaign or funded businesses. And so that peer-to-peer coming together to pay, you know, whatever you could pay putting into the pot in order to fund big projects, but not just here in the U.S. In the Caribbean, it's been called Partner But throughout the continent of Africa, it's been called SUSU. And so this peer-to-peer of coming together to fund projects has existed. We now see the Indiegogos and the Kickstarters, and these things are not new solutions to solving 
funding problems, like they've existed. The same similar utility with Airbnb, right? Of like people either with spare rooms or kind of pulling their money together in order to keep a roof on their head. Well, that's something that we've not only seen since slavery ended here in the United States, it's something that oftentimes I know in the communities that I grew up in, that was the thing that we saw a lot of people from the Middle East that immigrated to the United States do. And what often ends up happening is people laugh at it. They call the ideas hood, they call them ghetto, they call them rudimentary, they call them all these things and not take a step back and say, hmm, like they might be onto something. And when I tell people these examples, like that is what it means to be an innovation desert or to live in one, is that the ideas exist, but the ideas are often discounted or laughed at, or they're not funded at the respectable levels and the right type of resources. And that becomes the difference between a jitney taxi and a global behemoth, like an Uber, right? And I'm not saying that these entrepreneurs who started these massive companies came into black and brown neighborhoods and stole the idea. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is the idea, the utility has always existed in these communities out of necessity. And we oftentimes don't look at them as the innovation and the way that they're solving problems at the moment that could have given us the innovative approaches and solve problems years before we now have the things that we have today. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes and they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, 
He said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. What do we need to bring to innovation deserts to make them innovation forests? What are the missing pieces? Yeah, it's a lot of what I just mentioned, right? And so it's the respectable amount of funding. And so we're starting to see shifts in funding in Black and Brown communities for innovators happening. But oftentimes it's still a charitable approach as opposed to this is something that I'm investing in that I'm looking for outsized returns. And there's a big difference in that. You know, when you make a charitable type of investment into a business, you actually have very little expectations of a return. And so you're also then not following it up with all the right high level mentorship or support that you need for that company to grow, to give you an actual return on your investment. And so that's one big part of it. The other part is resources, the right high level type of resources that are needed for those companies to be able to grow in their community, but then also solve problems throughout the globe, right? And if we're solving problems in most of our communities that absolutely need it the most, that's probably a problem that exists throughout the United States, exists throughout the globe. Why? Because the black and brown community are the global majority. And so if you're solving a problem in that community, more than likely it's a problem in other communities as well. And so looking at the market potential of those ideas completely differently is also the resource that's absolutely needed. And I would say that that last big component is something that I kind of hinted on even with the innovation deserts is like we have to be more asset framed than deficit framed in those communities as well. And so if we only look at those communities for the challenges or what's broken, we never frame it in what's right and what we can actually build upon. And that's really kind of moving away from looking at only need-based, like what is the opportunity that given the right resources that we can build upon, once you realize your personal zone of genius, like inject your genius into solving problems in those communities and really being able to help connect the dots. Alicia, you you spoke a little bit already about the inspiration your father brought to you through his own entrepreneurial work. And I'm curious, I'm sure you've had other mentors over the years, but now you yourself are a mentor and you mentor and coach newer entrepreneurs. What over the course of your experiences with your own businesses and your own mentors, how does that shape the way that you yourself mentor younger entrepreneurs? Yeah, there's so much, right? I think I I wasn't always the best mentee, right? And so that has informed quite a few things that I bring to being a better mentor. And so a lot of the entrepreneurs that I mentor now, even with Black Ambition, we had a really big mentorship program last year. We created a cohort-style mentorship program for close to 300 entrepreneurs. It's, if I had hair, my hair would be gone, right? Just how much it took to put that mentorship program together. But one of the things that keeps coming up and something that I had to personally learn was 
asking the right questions. And so, you know, Tony Robbins always says the quality of your questions determine the quality of your life. And I take that a step further. The quality of your questions determine the quality of your business and your teams and your products and your services. And so helping young people, helping entrepreneurs and creatives ask bigger, richer, more expensive and much more expansive questions of their life and their business is usually the first step because you can have an amazing mentor and not ask them the right questions and it becomes a missed opportunity. I've personally been there, so I know what that's like, right? I remember having so much imposter syndrome at behind the stage of some event, some big conference with like the chairman of the board of Microsoft and like asking him about like growing up in West Palm Beach, like the chairman of the board of Microsoft. Can you imagine that, right? Like why didn't I ask him all these other much more important questions, especially like, can I get your contact info so that I can ask you more questions? (laughs) Do you have a business card? (laughs) There were so many better questions to ask in that moment, right? And so one, not knowing what to ask was a problem. And then two, so often we ask or pray for these big moments to happen in our life and then you get them and you're not prepared for what's next, right? And so asking those right type of questions becomes really, really important for that relationship. And then also, I think, knowing how to pull things out of the mentee, because oftentimes we see things in them that they do not see. And so you also want to make sure that it's a great relationship, that you can help stretch them in really important ways um, based off of where they are in that moment, and then really kind of guide the vision of where they should go. But then also be in a position to really put them on. And so when I talk about mentorship, There's mentors, of course, there's champions, but then there's high level mentorship as well, right? And so not just someone that can give you advice, but if I truly trust you and we built that relationship, I'm going to really kind of bet my reputation on making some right and key introductions to really put you on and accelerate what you're doing. And so that's something that I push on mentees, knowing the moment to ask. And don't expect that it's just going to be bestowed upon you or this person's going to do it, but ask the big ask that you need to get the things that you need in the moment. So financial literacy is also an important pillar of being an entrepreneur and kind of moving forward and building a career. How does that fit into your vision of supporting innovation with all the people that you mentor and also just more broadly in in the initiatives that you're doing? Yeah, numbers are everything, right? Is it a Jay-Z quote where he says, like, men lie, women lie, but numbers don't lie? I'm quoting Jay-Z, right? So um, it's everything. And I think what we don't think about with financial literacy is that many people have grown up with a very toxic relationship to money. And if we don't heal that part first, you can be in the right moment at the right time and not be able to leverage it because of your relationship with money. And I say this because most of my job is introducing entrepreneurs to funding, traditional and non-traditional. And so many times entrepreneurs don't know how to evaluate their companies. Uh, They don't know the value of themselves, right? And because of that, Oftentimes they end up in meetings where it's the right moment at the right time, but the wrong ask. They're not asking for everything that they need. They may not fully understand their numbers. They may not fully understand their value. And that becomes such a missed moment for entrepreneurs. And so, and sometimes no amount of like, 
well, pick up the book Venture Deals and like watch these videos and watch like, you know, the Techstars Demo Day will actually replace if they don't fully understand the value of money themselves, then they can't go in and advocate for the financial best interests of their company or they end up giving too much equity away. And so the first part of that is actually personal. And I think what we ask, and a lot of us do this, is the question that we ask is, or we'll say like, they're not paying what I'm worth. And I was just like, that is the wrong question to ask, right? That is the wrong thing to say because no one can actually put a value on your worth. And that's why you're struggling with pricing this. What you can monetize is the value that you bring to the marketplace, the value that you bring to that client, the value that you bring to that business, the value that you bring to your business. But no one could put a price on your worth. No one should be putting a dollar amount on your worth. No one can do that, right? I think there's, depending on what your faith is, I think that's where that is centered. And so the right question to be asking and the right way to monetize things is not your personal worth. And I think that's where so many people struggle. It's what is the value that we're bringing and how we solve this problem? What is the value that we're bringing with this technology solution? How are we saving people time? Because that is the biggest commodity that you cannot get back. And ultimately, premium buyers or investors or angel investors or VCs are going to understand that much better when you personally understand that shift in the language that we have with ourselves that we ultimately have with other people. I was curious if you had any stories of like a situation where someone sold themselves short and what was the outcome? And then maybe the inverse, a story of where someone figured that out and how that helped them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can start with myself and my husband. Like the first time we received outside investment, we gave away 51% of our business, which again is even the reason why we started doing most of this work, like building the Black tech community in Miami. It was because I didn't have a family member or someone in my community that had actually gotten investment before. I didn't have a lawyer in my family that I could just bounce this question off of, of, does this term sheet even make sense? I mean, we ultimately hired a lawyer, but if you're not careful, you try to solve the problem yourself because of the big expense in order to get the opportunity, which was like the legal cause. And so even why we ventured down building this community was because we did not have a community when we needed to ask this type of question or no one around us had even received a financial investment into their company. Like I remember asking my dad, and my dad literally thought it was a scam. Why? Because there's so many predatory financial things that happen in black and brown communities. And so when big moments happen, sometimes you can dismiss that as being a scam because you don't fully understand it because you're the first one to to venture down that. And you, quite frankly, don't have a sophisticated enough network to be able to ask these type of questions, right? And so I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, sometimes we build things or build community specifically because we've had the pain that we don't want anyone else to go down. And so it was us. And I think now, you know, building a co-working space and bringing all these entrepreneurs in, like I can go on for days on stories in which entrepreneurs have been screwed over by investors and you would hear more of them if people were more vulnerable to actually talk about it. It happens more than most people will ever admit, but I would love more people to talk about their failure stories because that's how we all learn. We can navigate the pitfalls a little bit better, but then we can also say, well, do you actually need that outside investment? 
And I'm saying all this not to say that investors are horrible or evil people, but that's just the way the business community works. And so I think we've gotten to this point from a media standpoint where we over glorify like the raise or we over glorify the need for outside capital and not talk enough about making sure that you protect the best interest of your company, protect the equity for as long as you can. And so when I talk about like some of those toxic things that happen in the business environment, a lot of it is that. In recent weeks, like I've had a number of conversations with founders that have been pushed out of their companies because they made the wrong board decisions, right? Or they've been pushed out of their companies because they gave up more equity, didn't fully understand how to navigate their cap table in the right way. I've seen it all. That is what leans back to really building a strong community and people around you that you trust so that you can ask these questions and not go into these situations blind. Felicia, maybe this is a good segue to talk about your role at Black Ambition, where you're a CEO. And tell us the origin story. I mean, we're both super curious about how you got to know Pharrell. And my kids, by the way, love Happy, as I'm sure most kids out there do. It's <laughs> their favorite song. Who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, tell us how that started. What's the origins of that? And what's your mission? Our mission with Black Ambition is really twofold. And so one, it's to create more wealth in diverse communities by fostering entrepreneurship and then investment in Black, Latinx, and HBCU startup founders. And so the organization was founded by Pharrell Williams two years ago to do exactly that, right? And so create high-level mentorship and really kind of unprecedented access to mentorship and the capital and the resources that those entrepreneurs need to succeed. And so this is his second nonprofit. The other one is Yellow, which is more youth kind of STEM-based with a school in, in Virginia. And then Black Ambition is national. And so we fund entrepreneurs through a prize competition. And so technology, healthcare, consumer packaged goods, and Web 3.0 are the areas in which we are funding entrepreneurs and innovators, and then Black, Latinx, and then HBCU companies. And so we funded 34 companies last year all across those specific industries, and we're doing it again. And so we do a national search, and our entrepreneurs, we invested about close to $4 million in those companies last year. They've gone on to raise close to $50 million just since demo day of last July. And um, we'll fund about the same amount of companies, if not more, this year. So I think one of the verticals that I'm excited about the most is our Web 3.0 vertical, because we really want to fund entrepreneurs that are building in the NFT space, in the metaverse. Like we're looking for really cool innovators. And then when you think about like our founder, Pharrell, and why he started Black Ambition, like this guy is the ultimate dreamer, right? And when we talk about creating environments that are unprecedented, something that we also talk about is opportunities and making sure those opportunities are uninterrupted. And so we ask that question of our founders quite often, like, like who are you uninterrupted? Like if nothing stood in the way of you achieving success, like what kind of company would you build? Like what would you design? What would your life look like? What would your community look like? And then we literally want them to hold on to that and then go build that, right? And so it's a different way of asking, well, what kind of company would you start? Or what are your dreams or what are your goals? Like, how can we help you think and build something much more bigger and much more expansive than you ever thought possible is what the question that kind of grounds all the work that we do. And then it's our job to try and create that environment 
as much as possible or remove the barriers that would interrupt them from being able to take advantage of that opportunity and really build something that is transformational. And so how I got connected to Pharrell, it's really just building what we've built over the past eight years and a conversation with his chief of staff at the time was how the conversation started. And literally that afternoon, I got a phone call back and was just like, do you want to be the CEO of Black Ambition? And I was like, the CEO, what? And she's like, Black Ambition, like everything that you built is everything that we need, right? Was the conversation. Although looking back, I wish I would have said yes right away, but it was something that I definitely had to take some time to think about before making that big move into becoming the CEO of Black Ambition. And so I'm really proud of what we built, really honored to be building this for such a visionary and an entrepreneur and a musician and a dreamer. And we have a lot of work ahead of us, but the entrepreneurs that we've worked with over the past year, which has been about 300 of them and training them and then funding 34 of them, like they have done things that we could have only dreamt of that they literally brought to life over the course of this past year. It's fascinating. What are some of the businesses that are coming out of Black Ambition that are exciting and maybe are noteworthy in, in the momentum they've already gotten? Yeah, you know, our top prize winner is a company called Livegistics, some guys based out of Detroit. They are in the construction space, but they have built a SaaS product that is just really innovative, right? You think like they're third generation in the construction industry. And I like that trajectory from kind of being on the construction side to saying like, no, there's a problem that we can solve with technology. And they do work around like the ticketing and waste management space and being able to solve that problem through a technology solution that is getting ready to roll out into like 900 solid waste management facilities and like those companies actually requiring every vendor that works with them to use that technology. And so they were our top prize winners. Their story is just phenomenal based out of Detroit. You know, Alodia is one of the other companies that is doing something really interesting as well. Femly, you know, we funded quite a few companies in the healthcare space. One of those companies has created a hardware that makes maternal health monitoring easier and something that can be done at home in order to help solve for the high maternal mortality rates in the United States. And Quirktastic is doing something that I think is really cool and kind of building communities in the anime space. And so like the company, Bodle, is an ed tech company that's based in Tulsa that we funded. And then Google for Startups ended up funding them right after that. I think they've raised about two to three million dollars in just like the past few months, in addition to what they were able to raise from Black Ambition. One of our other companies is getting ready to roll out into 300 target locations across the United States. One of the other companies in the health and beauty space is rolling out into all the Marriott's. And so the companies have done some really, really phenomenal things. Be Readers, which has, I think, about three million users on their platform. And they've created an edtech platform that teaches Spanish speakers like Spanish. And so most times I think we're always thinking of teaching someone one language and helping them better learn another language, but not necessarily proficiency in like their native language. And I think like all of those companies are just really phenomenal and doing some really interesting things. I'm sure over your career, you've done a lot of work within communities. And then if I understand it right, some partnerships with government 
I think in both those situations, there's the potential for lots of bureaucracy and roadblocks and things that could stand in your way. How do either you yourself or how do you advise your companies to navigate those kinds of challenges? Yeah, you know, you don't get to operate in this business world without building some really strong relationships. And that's always my advice, right? And so like nurture your relationships as much as you possibly can. And not only in the moments where you need something. I think that's where a lot of us make mistakes is that we don't hold on to the relationship. We don't continue to nurture it. And that moment when you need something, you feel like egg on your face for calling the person only in the moments when you need something, right? And so a good friend of mine had this process in which he kept in touch with people. And it started with how he actually categorized them when he was saving their information in their phone. And he's like, it takes a little bit more time, but it's so useful. And so most of us will just save someone's name and their phone number and maybe the company that they work at. And he's like, no, I save where we met, usually ask for their birthday and like one unique thing about them. And so he's like, throughout the course of a year, I'm going to send them a text on their birthday. If they're a parent, I may send them something like happy Father's Day, happy Mother's Day. And so he's like, by the time that I need to call them for something, they will never feel like I am only calling them because I need some because I've literally checked in with them throughout the course of the year. And he was like, it doesn't take any time. Like when you're at a stoplight, email, text or message someone, right? If I see an interesting article, I'm sharing it with someone. But he's like, if you don't categorize them the right way in your phone, it makes it really hard to do so. And so he's like, it literally takes another minute. You know, his mentor is Jeff Hoffman, one of the founders of Priceline. And this guy was like a former rapper turned like tech all-star, right? And he was like, I've only gotten through that through mentorship and really fostering relationships. And so that's my advice, right? When working through government, it's hard. It always takes longer than it should. It always takes longer than it will. And whatever your ask is, by the time you actually get the thing, it's usually a fraction of what you asked for, may not even look like what you asked for. That has been my experience. But Knowing who to call and when to call and fostering those relationships means absolutely, absolutely everything. That's brilliant. And I got to ask, is this just being managed through like contacts on your phone or is there some special tool for keeping track of this, tagging people? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's all kind of tools now, right? But like, and the guy's name is Spectacular. And so like when he pulled out his phone, he had every person in there categorized, right? It's just like name where he met the person, like there's a note section in contacts where you can actually like put a little unique note of like, hey, I met this person at South by Southwest or I met this person at CES. Here's one unique thing about them. In the context, it also asks for the person's birthday. And so it becomes easier for us to do this when we realize there's a whole other utility of how we do this instead of just dropping somebody's name in there really quick, right? Which is what I usually used to do. And then when you want to reach out to someone or something like you rely on Facebook to remind you that it's the person's birthday and it's no longer a special moment. Or we have all this free time when we don't even realize it. you're waiting at the doctor's office, you're waiting for a Zoom to start. Like you could be intentional about fostering a relationship that doesn't always require a heavy lift. And I I would say the other part of that is, you know, anytime I do business with someone, like I'm sending them something, right? Usually an edible arrangement, maybe it's a favorite book. I'm always reminded that someone could have made a different choice. And because of that, like I literally want to show them that I appreciate you betting on us as an organization or Felicia as a person. 
And those moments of enchantment are things that you can create that really don't cost you that much. It's just the, the intention behind it. I think a, a handwritten note still goes a really, really, really long way. And most of us just won't do it, right? I Like, if you can see behind my screen, I know we're, we're on audio, but like every handwritten note that I've gotten in the last few months is literally, like I save them. We save those things because they're just so rare. People don't do it anymore. And every time I look up, I see this note, right, from the Amazon team. And I see this note from Hannah. And I see this note from Jessica. And it's a constant reminder that they appreciated me. And like when I look up and I need something, like, oh, let me think of that person first because they're literally right in front of me because they took the time and care with something that 99% of the people just will not do. And so it's really mastering the basics. I think we're always looking for this next technology tool to do something that is just being a human and having another human moment with someone else. I love that. That's, that's so great. Felicia, I'm curious if there's anything that you're watching, listening to, reading, or experiencing that's lighting you up and, and got you excited. I'm reading the 12-word the sales letter right now, which I think is just a phenomenal, phenomenal book on copywriting and just getting right to the point. I'm binging on Netflix whenever I get a spare moment just to have the creative release more than anything. And then I'm just trying to prioritize self-care because life is really busy. Outside is open back up, especially in Miami. And trying to hold on to the self-care practices that I implemented during the pandemic, just so life is less chaotic and there's much more of a flow to the things that I'm doing. Felicia, where can people learn more about you and what you're doing? My personal website is FeliciaHatcher.com. I'm literally Felicia Hatcher all across the internet because it's easy for me to remember. And blackambitionprize.com is, is our website. Our prize application is currently open. So if any entrepreneur is looking for funding from Pharrell, that is where you go. And our demo day is in September. Fantastic. Felicia Hatcher, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you both, Aaron and Eli.